Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Did you say ex-leper? That's right, sir. 16 years behind a bell. I'm proud of it, sir. Well, what happened? Oh, cured, sir. Cured? Yes, some bloody miracle, sir. God bless you. Well, who cured you? Jesus did, sir. I was hopping along, under my own business. All of a sudden, up he comes, cures me. One minute I'm a leper with a trade, next minute my livelihood's gone. Not so much as a by your leave. You're cured, mate. Bloody do-gooder. Well, why don't you go and tell him that you want to be a leper again? Oh, I could do that, sir, yeah. Yeah, I could do that, I suppose. What I was thinking, I was going to ask him if he'd make me a bit lame in one leg during the middle of the week. You know, something beggable, but not leprosy, which is a pain in the ass. to be blunt. Excuse my French, sir, but... There you are. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Arthur Dinari, my bloody life story. There's no pleasing some people. That's just what Jesus said, sir. Dr. Travis Brown, we're talking leprosy for this episode, and there's just a line that comes to my head whenever I think of this, and I'll do it wrong, but something like, um, arms for next leper. Arms for an ex-leper. You know, did you say ex-leper? Yes, cured, sir. Bloody Jesus cured me. <laughs> it was from the Life of Brian yeah. movie, and yeah. that's that's the the pop culture reference for me. Of course, a lot of comedians have used that procedure along the way, and I'm sure not always grabbing the right end of the stick. No, well, look, it's it's very interesting the the history of uh, of leprosy, and we'll get in that today. So, uh, Monty Python's always uh, a good reference, yeah. a good starting point. Yes. Uh, so, our our story today starts with uh, the the official story of of Saint Damien of Molokai. Oh, not Brian, not Brian. Okay. No, so, so Damien. Yeah. Uh, now, he was born in 1840. He was the youngest of seven children. Uh, he was born, actually, his name was Joseph de Vesta. Uh, he was Belgian. Uh, he was educated and joined the Society of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. Uh, and then we find him uh, in 1863 as a missionary. Uh, and he was uh, in Hawaii. He was replacing a, a father, a Pamphile. Uh, who had become unwell. And then by the 1864, he was uh, an ordained priest. Right. So he was going all the way through. Uh, and the story says that then he moved to some miserable conditions. Uh, there was a, a place called uh, Kalupapa. Oh, is it still in Hawaii? It is. Yes, it okay. is. It is. So this was on the island of Molokai. Uh, and this was uh, a leper colony. Uh, that had been put created by the Hawaiian government, and these people had been isolated in this region. Uh, now, he volunteered to take charge, uh, and he was known for his compassion, his spiritual and physical and emotional comfort to people who were suffering. Uh, he served as their pastor as well as physician. Uh, he took on projects that were to improve the water and the food, uh, housing, uh, he was also uh, founded two orphanages, uh, and in 16 years that he was there, he only had help from another priest of about six years of those. So he was doing it, you know, pretty tough by himself. I have to ask, as a layperson, mm -hmm. it seems to me to take great courage if you're going to immerse yourself among 
lepers. There was a reason lepers were sent to a leper colony because of contagion, one would expect. Well, and and that's what we all this what this story is about. So with with Damien, yes, amazing courage. This this looks uh, and it's an amazing story. This is you know hero story of someone going to to serve those who are less fortunate, uh, and. You know, there's there's also stories that he was phenomenally strong, uh, and that he could lift four times the locals, and you know, oh wow, amazing you know stuff. And again, the Christian path. He was looking after the sick. These people of a leper colony, a quintessential Christian story. And it is interesting with people who have that sort of motivation, that, that vision that drives them up and above mm. uh, their immediate discomfort for the greater glory, whether that be a secular vision or a religious vision. It, people can be driven to achieve against all the odds. Well, look, it's an amazing story. And and then, unfortunately, in, in 1884, we have him getting scalded with hot water, but he didn't feel any pain. Oh. And so that's a common sign of leprosy. You didn't, you are not able to feel the pain that you got. Uh, and so he refused to leave for treatment. Not that there was any treatment back then anyway, but isolation was the actual treatment. Uh, and then, then there started to be this little bit of an unusual rumours about, you know, spread about immorality. Uh, and the re- that's the reason he got ill. Oh. But he ended up dying in 1889. He died of leprosy. And so there was an investigation into his death about the his behavior, but it, he was exonerated. I'm not sure that he cared either way at that point. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't at that time. Um, and then what we find is in, in 1965, the, you know, Hawaii placed a statue of Damien in the National uh, Statutory Hall of the U.S. Capitol, uh, in 1995, he was beatified by uh, Pope John Paul II, and in 2009, he was canonized by Pope Benedict. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he is now known to history as St. Damien of Molokai. Now, this is, as you said, a remarkable story. It's of true sacrifice, the benevolent servant, uh, the serving those less fortunate, and whose acts led to his own death. And that's why his sainthood. Now, I always like to put these things in context. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like a fantastic story. And and to be honest, what even happened at that point in time is the church advertised this at the time as saying, here's a martyred person, a martyred priest, a martyred father. Join us to God's work. That's interesting because I always thought that the saints were people who had these uh, acts that, of uh, miracles mm. next to them. But this is the other end of the spectrum where it's the uh, selflessness and the, the martyrdom, the drivenness mm. that's led to the sainthood. That's right. And so when we look at, when we delve a little bit deeper into this story, we, we start to see, oh, okay, well... Let's look at the history of Hawaii and let's see, well, how did they get a leper colony going uh, and what was this need for? And so... Can I guess? Introduced by Westerners? Well, well, we'll see. Uh, (laughs) I'm jumping ahead, aren't you? You are, you are. So we we put this in contextualised. So, you know, if we look at it from a Western, you know, side of, of history, you know, you know, Hawaii was "quote unquote" discovered uh, by British explorer James Cook in in 1778. 
Uh, and the problem with this discovery is that any time a native culture came in uh, came into contact with uh, Europeans, mm-hmm. uh, there's significant uh, reduction in population of the you know population, and that's that's true here. So, you know, it's estimated you know by the mid 1800s the native population has dropped by either 60 to 80 percent. Oh my god! Just because of the you know the Exposure. Interaction, yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> there's a there's a wonderful article written by Penny Moblo, who starts to dig away some of this some of this story, uh, to to say, well, look, let's look at this story a little bit closer, and she go on to the point of actually getting uh, original documentation, primary references of the time, uh, and so if we look again at the history, so 1810 to 1891, there is the monarchy of Hawaiian Islands. Uh, it's a short reign, to be sure, uh, compared to other monarchies. But the important point of this is, like in 1887, we have King Kalkalua, uh, who was ended up forcing to sign a constitution of the Kingdom of Hawaii, limiting their own power. Mm. And it was called the the bayonet constitution in sort of in historical terms. Is that because it was signed at the point of a bayonet? Pro- most likely, or what it caused was that it gifted power towards American, European, and some native uh, landowners. So it was their own, you know, to their own demise a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then in 1891, Kalkalua died, and his little sister, Lulu Katani, succeeds him. Now, her intention was to overturn that signature and the sort of the pre-1887 but this was opposed by the government at the time, uh, by uh, government minister John Stevens and the U.S. Marines and soldiers. Uh, she ended up having to abdicate only a, around a bit after a year, and then it was turned over to government, uh, the U.S. government. She didn't flee to Canada, did she, like no. other royals? Okay. No, she stayed around. She was under house arrest, though. Oh, and so we put that into the political background. So there is a bit of a power play happening at this at this time. And then we have leprosy. Now, leprosy was believed at the time to have been brought into Hawaii by Chinese immigrants, they oh, said. Right. Uh, you know, 1830 to 1840s. Now... When Chinese immigrants come along, that was challenged a little bit more. So clearly there's some racist rhetoric going on as to where this problem uh, stemmed from. Mm. Thank goodness that in modern days, if we have something like COVID-19, there's no questions or doubt. over. <laughs> I, th- I think everyone can understand then well, what's, you know, scapegoating. Yes. And so in 1863, leprosy is, is given the term as an official threat to the population. Mm. And it's spreading. And so this gets the attention of the Board of Health of the US government. And so they sort of step in and say in 1865, we have the king of the time who signs a law of segregation for those with leprosy. And they're sent to Kalkalupapa on Molokai Island. Now, this is a flat part of the island surrounded by the sea, but also pretty steep cliffs at the back. So you are pretty isolated. It's not impossible to escape, but it's very difficult to. Mm -hmm. And it was believed that people could there be self-sufficient. Oh, okay. So the reality, though, of course, was it's much harder than that. 
And in 1835, uh, the Hawaii natives are the predominant workforce uh, on plantations and farms. But then by 1880s, they're considered inferior to the Asian workforce, not necessarily just because of the working, but because of the work conditions. So the landowners, the Asian immigrants have less rights, pay them less, and you can work them harder. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you have the native workforce, they actually have more rights and can take things to court if they're not, if they're not feeling that they're being used appropriately. Mm -hmm. And then we have the workers trying to support themselves with or without leprosy, depending on where they are, in reduced demand because there's an increased Asian workforce who can be paid less and worked harder. And then you get this problem of native landholders starting to uh, employ families and, and patients' families, but becoming obstructive to the board of health, it seems. And so, in what way? Well, they were just saying that it was difficult to direct them. They would do things that the Board of Health didn't want them to do. They would be uh, interact inappropriately, uh, and so the Board of Health would then take people who are non-lepers from the leper colony out. So you would leave more lepers in the leper colony mm-hmm. to do more of the work. But of course, they've got a condition which makes it hard to work at times. And also you can get injured working and not necessarily know it. So the Board of Health instituted more exclusion uh, and became more stringent with it. And then people started to try leave more and more. And so what they found was that people were were more dependent on the state. And so that's the problem is it fed into this uh, narrative of them being lazy uh, and not wanting to work, whereas there wasn't as much work. And so then, by this stage, we have uh, the settlement um, is being supervised by non-Hawaiian natives. And so this is who the Board of Health have put in charge, mm-hmm. and eventually they get riots because they're being oppressed, and the superintendent who's there gets put in, in chains Uh, The food supply gets taken control and the Board of Health decides, okay, we need to change things up a bit. I thought this was going to be such a simple story about leprosy and it sees that it's it's political, geopolitical, social, there's all these other elements. And that will become more and more apparent in this discussion. (laughs) And that's the point. And and here's here's where we go. So this Board of Health then decides, okay, we need a, a native Hawaiian in control However, we're not going to let them take control of the finances. We will have a person who is non-native taken in control. And given the times, you can imagine who that would be. And so at this point in time, we have Damien, who's there. He's lived in the settlement for three years. And he's served as part Hawaiian patient superintendent. Now, he was appointed as the temporary administrator at the time, but it was revoked by the patients. Oh. And so... But he was appointed anyway. And so then we start seeing these primary sources of the inmates and patients complaining about the lack of care that was given. By Damien. That's right. And then there's a Protestant minister who is there who Damien put in shackles and sent to prison. And so there's clearly problems going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, The living conditions deteriorate 
And there's a loss of control, so people are even drinking more, causing more problems. Are you sure Catholics and Protestants not getting on well together? <laughs> I, I, it might be hard to believe, but uh, we'll, we'll take it at its word. Surely an isolated case. <laughs> and then the government provides a, a visiting physician uh, and provides basic remedies. And what ends up happening is the patients are very active in looking after themselves, even sending letters to newspapers <laughs> to, to get attention to an issue that is problematic for them. And then we have the economic threat comes in and we have the Hawaiian supplies of rice and sugar goes to the US, but then the US starts to say, well, this is from people who potentially have leprosy. leprosy. And so in 1883, there's a San Francisco Chronicle that says it could spread to the US if they're using people who have leprosy and the environment becomes even harder. Damien contracts leprosy and eventually dies because of it. After his death, there's a whole bunch of articles and books that are written, and not of all of them are in favour. Mm. And a number of them say, now, he was promoted. I'm sitting on the fence about him at the moment. <laughs> but even contemporary sources say that he was coarse, he was dirty, he had headstrong and bigoted. And so this starts to put the Board of Health wasn't necessarily happy about all of this attention being then given to Damien because then they get less credit for helping because you have a physician, missionary, carer of all the good, you know, mm. coming across and then they get credit for pretty much nothing. And so the legend grew into what we know today as St. Damien of Molokai. So is the story true? Well, aspects are. And this is where we look at leprosy, because leprosy has a very long history and not one that you're expecting. Joe Egmelis contracted leprosy in 1945. Barely seven years old, he was sent to the Phantom Island Leprosarium on the so-called death train. Right, let's continue this discussion around leprosy and... Uh You've got some ominous notes in front of you. I'm not sure where you're taking us in I'm the second part. I'm going to get your help with this one, Steve, because I don't have the answers on this one. Mm -hmm. uh, and look, leprosy, leprosy comes uh, with a whole bunch of uh, baggage. Mm -hmm. uh, even in modern society, we have a we have a perception of leprosy that probably isn't warranted. Uh, through the historical accounts. Mm -hmm. But look, leprosy has, anytime you think about it, you think about being unclean or... Yeah. Uh, limbs know, falling off exactly is, is common. Repulsive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we do know there are skin sores, there's disfigurement, um, nerve damage, muscle weakness. Even we do know in the back end, isolation is such a uh, core part of leprosy. Mm. And look... The one of the things that's it's also known the name is is Hansen's disease, and that's because in 1873, uh, Dr. Gerhard Hansen of Norway discovered the organism, uh, Mycobacteria leprae, and so they then realised around that time that this was produced by an organism, mm. and so for thousands of years it was a disease of the you know even to the point of depravity of uh, you know neglect, 
And again, that fed into the isolation, these people we need to be kept away. And we even get to the point of the biblical interpretation of leprosy, which is probably almost the largest factor that has shaped out is that Jesus healed the lepers. Lepers came, mm. uh, you know, to be healed. But if we look at the Hebrew word, it's zarata. Right. And that word, so I've gotten help uh, from a, a colleague, Dr. Leon Metley, who has helped me in the Hebrew interpretation of this. Now, when we look at this word, it's a skin condition in people. So the interpretation of the word is it's a skin condition in people, but it can also occur in clothing and in buildings. And there's no mention of neurological manifestations of this disease. And it's believed to be a ritual uncleanness, a ritual right. interpretation, right? And so there's no relationship to leprosy of this word, but it's been interpreted that. So before we look at this, mm -hmm. the word relates to a state of ritual impurity or you know punishment for one's sins. I mean, there is the reference also, if you go back to Hebrew times, um, where the menstrual cycle, yep. uh, when women menstruating, that was considered ritually unclean as well. Exactly. And so we, you see this theme of unclean. Now, when we look at leprosy, we find out, if we're able to trace it back, the word seems to have changed, first of all, in the 6th century mm -hmm. from Greek, where it became leprosy, and in the ninth century, in Arabic, where it became lepra. So suddenly we've got this word, zarata, go to leprosy on an interpretation. What's the significance of this? Where, where are you well, it's a different disease. Modern disease leprosy is not what they were talking about with zarata. So there's two different interpretations there, and we can trace that back. We know Jesus heals the lepra. But it's not what was actually written in the original text. Jesus healed uncleanness, ritual uncleanness. So Which we, might or might not have been what we call leprosy? Well, or we don't even think it, it might no, have? No, it's not the interpretation of the word. Mm. So our modern interpretation of leprosy is not what is written in the modern Bible. It is a different disease than what the author was writing. And so what we find out is then in that first millennia, this leprosy at the time was a punishment by God. It is a wrongdoing. It is a shameful disease. And then the perception started to change during the crusade. And so the care for lepers starts to become a Christian uh, obligation, a duty to care for these people because it is a disease of those who are unclean. So to do it is your Christian duty to look after leprosy. Hmm. And so... When we look at that, there's uh, also an association they're forced to stay in a leprosaria, which is an isolated area. So from the 14th century... Like a medivac hotel. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the leprosy isolation comes from for 500 years is the way to deal with it. And this is because then leprosy takes on the, on the virtue of the hallmark of a great community worker. Before you go, I don't want you to lose your thread, but does that mean our uh, thinking about leper colonies at the time of Jesus may well not be factual? Exactly. And so the problem is these people were isolated probably for a variety of skin conditions that had nothing to do with leprosy. Right. It could have, but there's no reason why it couldn't be things like 
just garden psoriasis. Things they didn't understand were thought to be a curse of God, a skin or a punishment, the physical manifestation. They were unclean. Therefore, they were isolated. And we interpret that, that thousands of years as a leper colony, mm-hmm. but it was just most likely different skin conditions. To be fair, when I had a cold sore, I did feel like a punishment <laughs> from God. Well, yeah, no, it's a horrible feeling. And, you know, but again, you, you go down the line of, uh, you know, herpes, viruses and everything like that would have been interpreted as you've done something wrong, mm-hmm. therefore it's temporary and it heals up. For the record, I've not had herpes, just in case. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> it is a, a herpes virus. <laughs> Letting you know cold sores is a herpes virus. Uh, All right. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, but here's the thing, and, and this is where there's a category, there's two categories of diseases that have historical significance, leprosy and syphilis. And this is because they come with connotations of unclean. Mm -hmm. They are associated with, uh, all I can say is historical defamation. They have, you know... That would be a great name for a punk band. (laughs) It could be. But you sit there and just go, so leprosy, they were in a leper colony. Therefore, they were unclean. They were dirty. There's a Mm. connotation. Syphilis is the same. And the reason why I say syphilis is because there's every once in a while, I like to sort of read up about, you know, famous historical people who have died. And the amount of time syphilis comes up as a, oh, they could have died of is remarkable. You look at Oscar Wilde, it's mentioned, Beethoven, a number of the uh, American presidents, so, you know, Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. Now, I don't know if there's any evidence for this, but it's a historical slur. Oh, he had syphilis. You didn't know. And so you sit there and go, so it also comes... Hang on, John F. Kennedy died of syphilis? No, but they say he had it. Oh, okay. And so you sit there and just go... It's, it's one of those things. You, you look through and it's a pretty much a defamation type thing. You, you cast aspersions on mm. someone's character. And so we find that this is almost weaponization of a diagnosis. And this, this brings me to a point that I keep on coming up against in my, in my research and I don't have a good answer for it. And that's, that's throughout human history, we always have oppression and uh, subjugation and slavery. And there are moments in time where we have doctors who have done things to other people because they could Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. You know, there's an example of a famous gynecologist who used uh, black women as um, subjects for his uh, investigations. Now, clearly, by any standard, it's wrong. And you come across this time and time again, the, the examples, just like this, these people were subjugated because of political, and it was, it was convenient to do at the time, and then we celebrate probably the one useful aspect of that. And there's also medical points of that. And, I, you know, you put these information on, you know, Twitter or, you know, wherever, and then someone says, oh, did you know they were oppressed? And it's just like, yes, how do we deal with with that mm. that is clearly throughout history and you know you talk about like romans and greeks where they have slaves just straight up people who would do lead uh you know lead and they were clearly going to die because of their exposure 
And I just trying to work out how you handle that and how you grapple with that from a medical perspective, because we have doctors who have done this, and I'm not sure how you how you best. When, what are you struggling with? The, the, the historical aspects of the past, or students today, still, uh, when looking for novel subjects to investigate, would seek out any groups that might be more subjugated. Do you acknowledge it and say, hey, this happened, and then move on? Do you go into it and say, this is really bad, what happens? You know, how do we deal with this? Or do you not even acknowledge it knowing that it just happened throughout history, not just in medicine, but in every facet of life, there is always the oppressed state? I always end up on the side of nuance. I think we have to live with that tension. This did happen. We can't put our heads in the sand. And to ignore it almost doesn't honour those people who were taken advantage of. And it depends where you sit on the the scale of utilitarianism or not. You know, the, if if it ended up with a net good of insights and moving forward, sadly that is a, a positive income for the rest of society. But ethically, lines were crossed, and one would hope that we can continue to develop uh, more astute understandings of ethics, which is hard to think. Uh, this is what I struggle with. Surely what's good and bad now has been good and bad universally, but then you've got the social pressures on the time and people getting away with it if you don't have the control of oversight. So, yes, it is murky waters. You've, again, this was meant to be a simple conversation <laughs> about leprosy, and now we really are in a, in a murky world. But surely it's not either or, it's both and. Can we not accept that ethical lines were not just crossed but obliterated and accept that while also still taking findings uh, at their face value and applying them and knowing that we're not going to go back that way again. Can it not be both then? This is India and the heartland of a disease which for generations has created fear and disgust. These withered hands and feet are the crippling legacy for sufferers often shamed and forced to live in isolation because of leprosy. Namita Michel contracted leprosy when she was 13 years old. Her family threw her out and she eventually came to the Lepra Institute on the outskirts of Jaipur. Leprosy is the cruelest of diseases, gradually eating away at the flesh until the patient is disabled. Namita lost her fingers, toes and left leg. Although highly dangerous, not all forms of leprosy, contrary to popular belief, are infectious. Normally, a possibacillary person, a person who has possibacillary leprosy, is not able to really transmit the disease to somebody else. He has the disease in him, but he is not able to transmit it. A person who has multibacillary leprosy is able to transmit the disease to uh, other people. That is through his nasal secretions or secretions of the mouth. But if he starts taking medicines, then very soon, maybe in a matter of weeks, he is rendered incapable of transmitting the disease any further. So far we've looked at the history of leprosy. Uh, you've taken us into a philosophical quagmire 
uh, Dr. Travis Brown, let's go back to the safe territory of the pathology of leprosy. Fortunately, the pathology is very straightforward now. Uh, and it's a, it's what we know about it, it's an organism that fits into a complex of mycobacteria leprae complex. And that's composed of two organisms. Uh, and the, the first is mycobacteria leprae, and the other is mycobacteria lepromatosis. Uh, and, and what we know from this is, uh, particularly because it's called mycobacteria, and the cell wall uh, is what actually causes the problems for us when it lives in us. Uh, it's made up of mycolic acids. That's why it's called mycobacteria. So it's a mycolic acid. So just a, a memory trick there. And the cell wall also has fatty acids and waxes and, and lipids in it, which is why it doesn't normally stain with our what we call our gram stain for bacteria. It sort of comes variable or doesn't stain really well. And so we, we have stains now, AFB stains or fight stains or the modified fight stain, which stain it up when you're looking at under the microscope, if you're searching for it. We can't grow this organism. Oh. So it's actually really hard. Uh, it doesn't grow on any artificial media. So you have to grow it if you want to in animal subjects. Uh, they talk about mouse feet, oddly enough. Do you come across many cases of this within Australia? No, no. So right. we, we do have it in uh, the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations, uh, but it's not very common at all. Uh, it's It's essentially, you know, almost none in Caucasian in our the environments yep. there. <laughs> so when we look at the organism itself, it's so hard to grow because it's such a slow dividing organism as well. It takes about two weeks for it to, to duplicate. Uh, and so it's also intracellular. So it has to grow in other cells. And so that's why media, you know, most bacteria can grow on uh, on uh, plates when you give it the right nutrients. No, these ones have to be within cells, living cells. And so when we look at the worldwide cases, it's estimated between, uh, you know, 600,000 to 8 million cases with about 500,000 cases per year uh, worldwide. But the problem is that's a pretty soft number. And we don't know, and it's a broad range because it happens a lot in poorer countries who don't have necessarily the, the infrastructure to be able to record it. Mm -hmm. And so the regions where it has the highest prevalence is places like India, Brazil, Indonesia, uh, Bangladesh, and, and Nigeria. But it's exceedingly rare in, in Europe or the UK. Uh, the US, uh, for what it's worth, in, in 2010 had about 205 cases. But again, 75% of them are from immigrants from, from other countries, mm -hmm. uh, mainly those countries. But the uh, transmission is not really known. We don't actually know how people get it. Uh, it's thought to be it's actually through respiratory uh, ways that it actually gets into the system or an open wound or, you know, possible soil. Uh, there's some animals that we know have uh, this mycobacteria leprae. Like? It, uh, the nine-banded armadillo. Uh, so if you're handling or killing or eat it, you could possibly get it. There's a red squirrel from, the, uh, from Scotland or UK. And in some primates, such as chimpanzees, uh, can, can have this organism. I've so, watched lots of kids' shows with my girls growing up with those animals in it. That's never been mentioned. No, <laughs> I imagine it wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but then when we start looking at where it's endemic, uh, we, what, we, what we do know is that patients have a 
50% chance uh, of a history of intimate contact with someone who has had leprosy or has leprosy. But in non-endemic regions, they only have a 10% chance of having that contact. So it's a bit unusual. And then if we look, when we look at historically, people say, well, this is contagious. This, you know, even in the same household, you're going to get it. I've already said that at the beginning of this show. Exactly. And so, but it's not true. We know that in endemic regions, so people where where leprosy is everywhere, household contacts only have a 10% chance of getting it. And in non-endemic regions, you have a 1% chance of getting it. And so people who are physicians or nurses looking after these patients almost have no risk at all of contracting it from the patient they're looking after. So the interesting thing is the people who come across it generally do not develop the disease. And this means that we have other factors for getting the disease. So immunostatus. So if you're immunosuppressed, you're more likely to get it. And there's clearly genetics. So someone who will have some sort of genetic can have a predisposition to getting that infection. Uh, there's a age distribution uh, between the ages. It appears to be bimodal. So between the ages of 5 and 15 and over the age of 30, people tend to get more uh, exposure and the infection. So what do we know about the organism? Well, the organism gets itself into macrophages, gets into the bloodstream where it goes around the body, but the organism prefers lower ex- lower temperatures, so 32 to 34 degrees, which is why it goes to the peripheries. Oh, of course. And so it prefers skin. And so that cell wall appears to be the thing that makes the body react. And it's actually, it likes to go around nerves and what we latest evidence suggests that it's actually our immune system response to that organism that causes the damage of the nerves and so the the interesting thing about it all is it takes anywhere from two to four years to present Mm. and so the average duration of the disease is five to seven years and they what they tend to get is these skin lesions and enlarged nerves and sensory loss. and But there's two different patterns. So you have tubulacoid uh, and uh, uh, lepromatous. And so tubulacoid is a, a little bit less severe. Um, you can get these dry scaly lesions and you reduce sensation. And it tends to be asymmetrical. Uh, whereas the other one, uh, lepromatous, is symmetrical. And you get systemic wide skin uh, thickening and nodules and widespread damage. So what we're finding then is that the skin tends to be hyperpigmented and rash-like. They get paresthesia, so unusual sensational loss of sensation in hands, feet, earlobes. And then if we get the late signs, they get weakness in their hands and claw fingers. They can get a drop foot, uh, facial paralysis and loss of eyebrows and eyelashes. Uh, They can even get a collapsed nose and perforated nasal septum. But here's the thing. It's not highly contagious. And it's always thought to be that. And so early treatment we have these days, which is really good to be able to stop the disability that comes associated with leprosy. Uh, And if anyone was ever to come across, you know, or even suspect, need a skin biopsy, a full thickness skin biopsy from the most active margin of the most active lesion. Uh, and then we can stain it and we can even do PCR these days to identify if it's there. Wow. Is that what we call a happy ending to this story? <laughs> the, happy, the, the unfortunate thing, 
about all of this is the World Health Organization decades ago said we want to eradicate it. And there is the opportunity to do that, but that was decades ago. It would be a fantastic thing for, to be able to do, but we haven't got there yet. So that will be the happiest ending if we can ever get there. It'd be great to have more people asking for arms for an ex-leper. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.